Welcome back to our study on uh, Judging the Judges. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open to the book of Judges, but though I won't tell you which chapter yet, because that might give away who we'll be looking at tonight. Uh, I hope this study has already been uh, profitable for you. This is one that I, I know I speak for us, that we're already really enjoying on a personal side. Uh, you love a good, I mean, this kind of goes behind some of the, the scenes here. We were talking about this this past Thursday about this study and everything, and we're just discussing, okay, this is a great character study. And one of us says, maybe it's not a character study. Maybe it should be called a biblical biography. Is that correct, that's right. Craig? Yeah, that's right. Biblical biography, right? And so this is a series, obviously, maybe studying some men and women that we don't often talk about, but we can uh, grow a lot from. This is a series we've had a lot of, a lot of fun with, also because of the nature of this. We, we sat down a few weeks back and said, okay, we're going to be, just, you know, we're engaged in this series. Instead of studying just the judges outright, let's do a ranking system of this. And so we kind of came up with a top seven of some sorts. Um, and this was a roundtable top seven judges. You know, today the AP poll came out uh, judging the top 25 college football teams. But tonight a, be a better, a bigger poll really comes out. And we update the ranking of the top seven judges. Last week, um, maybe if you remember, our first judge that we came in contact with and we studied was Ehud, right? We put together a little fact sheet for you to remember him by, right? So we seek about here. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's from, you know, central Israel. You can read about 10,001 enemies, okay, the one being King Eglon, right? Period of peace, 80 years, which we talked about was the longest period of peace Israel had outright. And then something that we noted, a point of interest, was that he was left-handed. Now that kind of keeps coming up with the tribe of Benjamin. But tonight, our study carries us a few chapters more, and it, I almost feel like I should say, can I have a drum roll, please? But I won't, I won't, I won't, obviously. But if you, if, you, if you will, open your Bibles up to Judges chapter 9 as we have a study on the character of Abimelech. So, before we get, before we start talking about why we've picked Abimelech and why he comes in at number 6 in our series and kind of give you some facts about him, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to, the, to the, the men to my right here and let them kind of go over the narrative of the whole account because it's a big one. Unlike some of the judges, he has a full chapter, maybe a little bit more, of um, details that kind of go through his whole story. So you have Gideon, judge, leader, dies, has lots and lots of sons. And we naturally ask, well, who will lead Israel now? One of his sons by a concubine named Abimelech. And he tells the people, do you really want all these people, all these sons leading Israel? Wouldn't it be better if just one did? And so he gets a bunch of money and hires a bunch of guys and they kill all the other sons. And Abimelech is made king of Israel. Well, didn't kill all the other sons. The youngest is still left. And his name is Jotham. And he tells the people a story about trees and thorns, which basically asks the question, have you made Abimelech your king in good faith or not? Because if not, the fire is going to burn, baby, burn. That's the first third. After that, the citizens of Shechem come to the realization that Abimelech 
It's not a good king. And ultimately, when you journey between verses 23 through 40, civil war breaks out. Abimelech, who is against the very city and he goes to battle with them there is a, a usurper named Gaal who enters the scene and says he would be a better leader than Abimelech so he rallies the people of Shechem to follow him and then ends up going to war against Abimelech and losing decisively and Abimelech has to conquer the very constituents who put him in power and that gets us section. Look at verses 41 through 57, the end of the chapter, you're going to see the fall of Abimelech, this uh, quote-unquote leader of Israel. I don't know how much leading he did. Um, it was very much for his own personal gain, I believe. But if you look at verses 41 through 57, you're going to start to see the fall of this king, who he made himself king over these people. Uh, of Israel in, ver in verses 41 through 57 uh, detail that and this evil leadership that has begun uh, as what we've talked about this evil leadership continues all the way to the point where it's time to ambush his very own people of Shechem um, well, his mother was a Shechemite this concubine and now he's going to lead a revolt against his own people against his own kind it wouldn't be the first time as Craig talked about with his own very own brothers. If you go back uh, to chapter 9, in verse 20, Jotham, he gives, a, uh, he curses uh, the reign of Abimelech, almost um, prophesies what will be the end of Abimelech. In verse 20, he talks about how the men of Shechem and Beth Melo will devour Abimelech. Okay, so Abimelech hears that, and he says, well, I'll show him. And in the fall of Abimelech, he is going to try to prove a point that he can utterly destroy the Shechemites and that they're nothing to worry about. And so for the first couple of uh, passages, first couple of sections in this, in this section, he's going to go up against the Shechemites in battle. And he's going to utterly destroy them. He goes up against men and women and children that are strictly out living their everyday lives, not ready for battle, not ready for war, not ready for any type of, of confrontation. All they have in their hands are agricultural tools, probably. And so he utterly decimates them, right? And so he goes up against a, a, a fortress in Shechem, and he completely destroys that fortress. And it's not enough. The bloodthirst is not enough. After these first two battles, he continues to battle against Shechem. Just like his brothers were massacred innocently, he innocently massacres the Shechemites as well. And so this vendetta and this bloodthirst continues on until this third battle where he is going to finally utterly destroy the Shechemites, the people he's supposed to be ruling. And what happens is he goes up to the tower and his whole army is there with him and a woman throws down this enormous millstone and it says it crushed his skull probably paralyzed him probably broke his neck and there he is laying on the ground and he calls out uh, for help but in a weird way let's read verses 44 through 57 to see the end he says he called quickly to the young man his arm bearer and said to him draw your sword and kill me lest the men say of me a woman killed him wow alright 
So his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his seventy brothers, and all the evil of men of Shechem. Or excuse me, and all the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads. And on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. There we go again, seeing the end in the fall of Abimelech took place just like Jotham had said it would. And we see this crazy, you know, ending, this epic ending to the life of a very, very evil man. So you might be wondering as we've gone over the story of Abimelech now, you know, it starts off over here with Craig, and we've got Abimelech killing 68 of his brothers. And it's in verse 5 of chapter 9, it says, and he, he pretty much got, got them together and killed them on one stone. Right? So he starts off in a terrible, awful way, and it ends with him being killed by what? One stone by a woman. He's so embarrassed by that, he you know, asks his armor bearer to kill him there. Why in the world we, why would we rank him at number six, right? Last week we had nothing but good to say. We debated if there's actually almost anything bad to say about Ehud. There was so much good about number seven that, you know, we just could go on and on. But now we have this man that objectively is a terrible, per, terrible person, right? His first action we meet of him is him killing all his brothers. So why does he outrank Ehud and why is he, number six, why is he on the list at all? Well, before we get into our initial observations, I just want to point out that the main reason we rank the judges and how we rank them is when it comes to not how good the person is, but how much we can learn from them. And just like as we look at our own examples in life, sometimes we can learn more from bad examples than we can learn from good examples. So yes, we could have countless hours and countless lessons on Ehud, and we could go on and on about him, the story of Abimelech, though, there's a lot we can learn from a terrible, terrible man. There's a lot of good that we can take away from a very terrible situation. So let me open the floor back up to you, 3D, when it comes to the initial kind of observations on this study. Now, to me, is that nowhere is Abimelech actually called a judge. Nowhere is he said to be a deliverer. Nowhere does the text say the Lord raised him up or the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. All these terminologies that are actually associated with the judges. And so I'm, I'm not, personally, I don't know that he should be counted as a judge of Israel. Uh, for me, if you want, read the stories of, of the judges, everything's in a cycle. A, God uh, raises up a judge to rescue the people. The people end up uh, abandoning God, serving other deities and uh, then God has to bring in some outside force to oppress them. It, we just came off of one of the great judges of Gideon. And for me, story isn't so much telling us about a new judge, but rounding out the cycle of Gideon. Everything's good up until the end of Gideon's life and he kind of causes some problems with some choices he makes and Abimelech carries Uh, problem that causes the oppression of the people again and now we are turning through the cycle again and by, by, Nehemiah, by Nehemiah, look there, I'm stuck in my sermon series by the 10 we have to have a new judge and so really, I'm, I'm not sure Abimelech should be considered a judge per se I mean he even, tell, he even announces himself as king and really what we have at the end of, a, of the good cycle reverting back to the bad cycle so that God has to raise up the next judge who appears in chapter 10 
Well, and to me, you talk about the end of the good cycle. It's how, how does a nation end up here? And I like to just look at the end of chapter 8 with you real quick. You know, chapter 8, uh, into, uh, let's see, verse 27. Gideon made an ephod of the gold given to him and put it in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel hoard after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So start off with spiritual compromise, spiritual convenience. Then down to verse 30. Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring. He had many wives, and verse 31 said he has concubines. Spiritual compromise, the breakdown in the home, and then go down to verse 34. The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, which is also the name of Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. They forgot God, and they forgot the heroes of their past. Spiritual compromise, the breakdown of the home, forgotten God, and the heroes of the past. I wonder if that sounds familiar. Just a So with those initial, initial observations, let's kind of dig a little bit deeper into the man of Abimelech himself. What are some characteristics that he displayed through this account? And, and this, might be, this might be difficult, almost like as difficult as finding bad and Ehud. Uh, yeah, bad and Ehud. Is there any good in Abimelech? Is there any good lessons or, or any good uh, characteristics we can see from this guy at all? I think when we look at Abimelech, Um, thank you, David. So when we look at uh, the life of Abimelech, I think there's uh, something we need to point out. You know, Craig kind of started on uh, what I'm thinking about the life of Abimelech. I think the life of Abimelech is, it can be very understandable. Um, here's this guy who is one out of 70, okay? One out of 70 uh children of Gideon, or however many, 68, I, I don't know, the, I'm, I'm just going to say 70. 70 children, uh, here's one out of 70, and he has to make a name for himself. And I can guarantee you, if you look through the scriptures and you look at different children, you have a favoritism between children and among children from different wives and different uh, uh, concubines. And here, not only is he a son of Gideon, He's a son of a concubine that Gideon had. Automatically, in that culture, lessening his value and his right as a son. So he has to make a name for himself. And the way he thinks he can do that is by grabbing at every bit of power he can get. And so I, while we see Abimelech go on to lead an awful life, you can understand from a human standpoint you know, how it got to where it got. And just like you said, I think a lot of Abimelech's failure as a person, as a leader, as someone that we study about, I think it goes back to how his father led Israel towards the end of his father's reign as judge. So let's just say that up front. But when we look at, is there anything good specifically about Abimelech? Uh, no. <laughs> no, there is not. Um, you know, we read in uh, Ezekiel that the sins of the father shall not be on the son and the righteousness of the father shall not be on the son. So ultimately, I don't care how bad of a guy Gideon was towards the end. 
the end of the day, Abimelech has to answer for the things Abimelech did. So I, I don't see anything good, any redeemable quality. At least when you look at Gideon, you have uh, redeemable qualities about Gideon, uh, redeemable things that he did throughout his life as a judge. Um, but when we look at Abimelech, not only does he disregard the legacy of his father and disregard the expectations that God the Father has on him, not only does he disregard his heavenly father and his earthly father, he hates him. I think his entire life is an effort to blaspheme God the Father. And is an, is an effort, his entire life is an effort uh, to ruining the legacy of his father Gideon. So, no, I, I don't see anything redeemable. I don't see anything good about uh, this supposed king of Israel. And I'm going to agree with Ben on that. Last Whoa. week when we did Ehud, I tried to be the one guy. Oh, no. Yeah, I know. Whoa. Uh, Take that I, in, everybody. I tried to be the one guy to, sh to find something negative about Ehud. I tried diligently myself, and, I, and I'm sure these, my, the other guys might have something positive to say about uh, Abimelech, but I couldn't find anything redeemable. To me, I look at Abimelech, and, and he's just the most self-absorbed person I can read about in Scripture. This is a guy whose sole focus was on himself. This is a guy who, who doesn't advance God's will in any way, shape, or form. Instead, he advances his own will, particularly by being funded out of the t a temple for, for Baal, not any way, shape, or form connected to the Lord God at all. He's also a guy who um, doesn't deliver his people from any sort of oppression. In fact, he's the oppressor in this situation. As, as uh, Ben and I described in the uh, initial summary of the story, he attacks his own people at times when they're even unarmed, going to work. This guy is completely self-absorbed. He doesn't care about the Lord's will, and he doesn't save his people in any way, shape, or form. And so for me, I don't see anything redeemable about him. But let's see if somebody else does. No, I don't. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, just a, a, complete, a complete disrespect, dishonor for uh, a nation's history with their God. Uh, Genesis 35, uh, Jacob buries all of the household gods, false gods, and jewelry uh, at the base of a terebinth tree in Shechem. In Joshua 24, Joshua gathers all the leaders of Israel together, and they make a covenant to honor God, and they put a large stone in that place as essentially a monument marking the covenant they're making to, that, to their God, our God, at a terebinth tree. And then here we have, essentially in verse 6 of our main text, chapter 9, all the leaders of Shechem, the same location presumably, come together at all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. In essence, he is uh, making himself king where several other times in this people's history at the exact location, at the monument in essence, where people before him have come and said, no, God is our king. And so uh, this guys he's a pretty rotten dude. Um, it's, I mean, the equivalent of going to the Washington Monument or the Lincoln Memorial or you fill in the blank and just completely disrespecting America and its history with our God. Uh, so yeah, pretty rotten guy. 
So the only thing I could find that was good about him, okay, was he had some leadership skills, right? He was a capable leader. Now, he was a terrible leader, but he was a capable leader. And one of the things I kept finding in his story about him is that the way he led was he did the action first. Now, the action was normally bad, but as a leader, I think that's something we can take away. Look down at verse 48. So Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, and he took it and he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a branch from the trees and lifted it and laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, what you have seen me do, hurry and do likewise, right? And I'm not praising Abimelech here, but when it comes to leadership styles in the Bible, I think that's something we can take a positive trait away from, is that as a leader, and we have to kind of give him his, uh, we have to give his credit here as well, that back in Shechem, he's the guy that convinced a whole city to rally behind him. He's a persuasive, capable leader. Terrible guy, but capable leader. And his leadership style, we kind of get an idea at in verse 48, when by doing this, he goes, I will do it first, and then I'll, I'll show you what you do, and you can do that. And I think that's an admirable leadership style. I think a lot of, I think people in our nation could take away that. I think all of us could take something away from that as well. But again, not trying to build the guy up yeah. or anything. You know, all the worst leaders that have ever been on earth were very persuasive. Yeah. So that's something to think about mm -hmm. in, our, in our world today. So the next question that we can kind of take away from is from Abimelech's young, the youngest brother, right? Jotham's parable. Jotham, Jotham's parable tells us a lot about leadership. How does this, how do these lessons play out in the Bible and even in our world today? Jay, could you, I, I know I summarized it. Would you be willing to read uh, verses 8 through 15 so folks will know that parable? Yes. All right. Verse 8. Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go, and go wave over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, Well, you, you come, you reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Well, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go to wave over the trees? And then the trees said to the vine, Well, you come, reign over us. The vine said to them, Shall I leave my, my new wine, which cheers God and men, and go to wave all over the trees? And finally, all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Yeah, I look at this, and first of all, it's just cool to see a parable in the Old Testament. When we think of parables, we think of Jesus. That's just a teaching style of Israel, a teaching style we see all throughout the Bible. Uh, but this parable is very powerful coming from Jotham. Um, this parable tells this, this story of, of these different trees that have value. These three different trees that have something to offer. Each one of them have a resource or something valuable to give off. And each one of them, when they're asked to, to lead and to be anointed king over them, they say, shall I leave the value behind that I'm, that I'm giving to, to, this, to this people? Should, should I leave that value and that worth behind to do this job? And they, they ultimately say, no, I'm not going to leave my value to do this. And so finally, after the first tree says no, the second tree says no, the third tree says no, they go to the bramble, the thorn bush, the thorns, bush of thorns. If you can think about this, you know, huge bush of thorns and how useless it is except to get in our way, to hurt us, to prick us, to hurt us in every way possible. 
They go to the thorn bush. They go to the bramble and they ask it to reign over them. And look at the irony of what the bramble says back to the people. Here is this worthless bramble bush, this, worst, this, this worthless thorn bush, looks back at the people and says, well, if I'm going to reign over you, then you have to come and, and shelter under my shade. Think about the irony of that statement. What kind of shade does a bramble bush offer? What kind of shelter does a thorn bush offer? Not only that, what kind of shade and what kind of shelter does a thorn bush offer other trees? Trees that are high and trees that are, are, are giant and, and, and glorious trees. What kind of shade can a bramble bush offer that kind of tree? The answer is none. But that's what Jotham is trying to say about Abimelech. Here you are looking at this man that has nothing to offer the people. He has absolutely no value to give the people. And you're saying, that's the one we want to be sheltered by. That's the one that we want to be reigning over us. That's the one that we want to be king over us. And so ultimately, obviously, there's a lot of parallels that we can make when it comes to uh, leadership, when it comes to God being our leader versus men being our leader, but I'll, I'll save that for someone else. Okay. Uh, I have a quote. It is with great reluctance that I have agreed to this calling. Great reluctance. I love democracy. I love the republic. The power you give me, I will lay down when this crisis has abated. That quote is not from the Bible. That is from Episode 2, Star Wars Legacy. Now, the reason it resonates and the reason it's smooth and tricky is because this Chancellor Palpatine, who would become the evil emperor, understands that really good leaders, they assume leadership and power reluctantly. There's a humility that comes along with that. And that's one of the things that I note about the trees that said no. They, they did not jump at the opportunity to assume authority and power. Instead, they saw it as something that they were not worthy to do. Um, and I think this caution and, and humility should be admired when it comes to potential leaders. Uh, that person that's just been itching to get control, not so sure about that person as a leader. I have a second quote for you. He cries out, but I'm nothing without this suit. To which Iron Man replies, if you're nothing without the suit, then you shouldn't have it. I go to the fictional world to kind of bring that up. Because as Ben noted, all of those trees early in the parable, they were already something now. They were already a blessing now. They didn't have to be a leader in order to bless other people. They didn't need to be a title. Didn't need to be an elder. Didn't have some position of authority to be blessing others. Right now, where they were planted, right now, they were serving and helping and blessing. And so, if you think, i got to have this position, this power, this control in order to bless other people, then probably you're not a fit leader. Hopefully, you're somebody who's blessing now. And we think about potential elders, isn't that what we're looking for? Somebody who's blessing the church now, who can maybe even bless even further. 
given that opportunity. Are there any similarities between Abimelech and his father? We've already kind of talked about that a little bit. Let's dig a little bit deeper in that. You've got this great story of, story of Gideon, which we might see again in the future. We've got this great, great leader, judge of Israel. Then we have this kind of rotten son, Abimelech, right? Can we see any uh, similarities between Abimelech and his father? And, you know, ultimately did the apple fall from the tree there at the end? For me, I don't really see much similarity. Uh, except for at the very, I mean, there might be some at the end of Gideon's life, because even though um, he rejects being a king, there is some um, power plays happening with Gideon. For me, the, there's a big difference, though, for the majority of Gideon's story and all of Abimelech's story, and it's that Gideon operated from humility and Abimelech operated out of arrogance. So if you go back to the beginning of Gideon's story, uh, He's reluctant to become a judge. He's in Genesis 6 when, when uh, the, the Lord appears to him and refers to him as a mighty warrior. This is a guy cowering as he does his agricultural duties in, in secret. And, and this is a guy who's really reluctant to take on a leadership role. Abimelech's out there seizing it. Abimelech's out there uh, making it happen. Abimelech's out there uh, working, be working behind the scenes with, with his own relatives. Hey, you, you go into Shechem and, and, t and ask them if they really want to have all these sons of Gideon rule over them. There's a big difference in that level of humility, and it, and it does uh, really build up to the point in Genesis, uh, sorry, in Judges chapter 8 and verse 22, when the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them in verse 23 of chapter 8, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That's the high point of Gideon's story right there. And, and though maybe some of the events that happen after that um, disprove his humility in that moment, it's a, he's still a far cry from where Abimelech gets to as far as Abimelech's self-serving, egotistical mindset that is apparent throughout the entirety of chapter 9. I would, uh, I see a similarity that certainly in certain phases or facets of their leadership, they failed. Um, somebody told me uh, that like a leader at a job, that you're a good owner of, or running your company, that you're a sign of a good leader is you can step away, walk away for a week, two weeks, three weeks, and things keep on humming right along. Like there's no issue. You've, you've done, you've done, that's a good leadership structure you've put in place. Good training. Uh, chapter 8, verse 33. Chapter 8, verse 33. As soon as Gideon died. As soon as Gideon died. Leader leaves. The people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Belbereth their God. As a spiritual leader... That structure somewhere it failed. And then in the same way, his son, maybe as a military leader or a governmental leader, we could say you failed. Go to chapter 9 and uh, verse 55. Chapter 9 and verse 55. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everybody went home, <laughs> basically. <laughs> it was over. And so in this, that's the idea, is that everything fell apart and crumbled when leader went away. So that's a challenge to us all when it comes to how we're leading. 
Yeah, I think we can learn from that too when you build all the structure on one man too, yeah. right? Which is, God is fighting against that being the structure at this point, you know, and yet Israel's still just putting all their hopes on the, this next judge, this next judge. So Abimelech makes, meets a pretty unique ending to his life, right? The woman throwing the stone on his head and him crying out for someone else to kill him. Is there anything that we can take away from that real quick before we get into some of the big applications? I think we look at Abimelech's life and it's a life filled with pride. Uh, not, not, a, not a good kind of pride where I have pride for, I don't know if there's a good kind of pride, but if, if you want to go that route, I, I have pride for the nation of Israel, right? I, I, want, I have pride for, for leading God's people the right way. It, it, that's not who Abimelech is. He lives his life on a sinful, boastful, haughty type of pride. And we learn from the book of Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18 that pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Right? Pride comes. And when that comes, when, when pride happens, when pride takes over, destruction is the only result. I don't care who you are and what phase of life you are in or, or, or what realm of life you're talking about. If pride is the primary motivator it will come to a fall. And we see that time and time again in the Bible. We see it time and time again in history. And if you're anything like me, you've seen it time and time again in your own life. Whenever pride takes the steering wheel, it is not too long before the thing gets off the road. So I think that's what we ultimately see from this end. Not only is he prideful up until the point of death that he's going to completely, utterly destroy his own people. But he's so prideful he wanted to be killed by his own man just to where someone wouldn't say a woman killed him. Here he is crushed and paralyzed and neck broken and the one thing he thinks about is what people are going to say about how he went out. How dare, I, the last thing I want is for them to say a woman killed me. Can you imagine? And so, what an awful, awful story. But like you said at the beginning of this thing, sometimes it's the awful story that we can look at our own life and ask ourselves, what's the difference in the way I conduct myself and the pride that I have in my life about who I am and what people say about me and the image that I put off and, and all the stuff I want people to think about myself. What's the difference in me and Abimelech? sometimes in my own life does pride take the steering wheel in my life and the question is to you tonight if that's the case then you better find another driver you better find another motivator because if pride is at the steering wheel in your life it is not going to be long before the car crashes So let's kind of wrap this up with two big questions here we can kind of throw in together. Um, what do we learn about God from this account? Because throughout this narrative, kind of in the background, you see God working together a couple of prophecies from the beginning to the end of this passage coming, you know, coming to fruition. So what, is, what can we learn about God from this passage? And then how can the story of Abimelech be applied to our lives today? The thing that I think we notice about God above all else is that 
Vengeance is his. In the Old Testament, God declared, Vengeance is mine, in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35. And he said, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me, in the 41st verse of Deuteronomy 32. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, the Lord is called a God of vengeance. That's Psalm 94 and verse 1. And he's said to have a day of vengeance in multiple passages. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 2 says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. My point is, the Bible is filled with references to the Lord avenging his people. And in this story, he first avenges Gideon or Gideon's sons, but he kind of also avenges Bimelech with this curse on Shechem. But ultimately the story is all about, I mean, think about it. All the people of Shechem get killed by uh, Abimelech, and then Abimelech gets killed. There is no champion in the story other than God. God's not, the, God's not uh, spoken of in any sense of the story other than he's the one who brings about the friction between Shechem and, 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 uh, and Abimelech. In other words, he's allowing it to happen. God, God is not a, a major player in the story himself because nobody in the story is following God. But God is the God who's in control, ultimate control, and God's the God who is going to avenge the, He's going to avenge His people, and He's going to get vengeance on those who hate Him. And so, let me bring that home with Romans chapter 12, verse 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's a quote coming out of Mosaic Law, out of Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, where God instructs his people, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We know that love your neighbor as yourself passage comes from the Old Testament, but we, we fail to realize that it's put in a verse in conjunction with not seeking vengeance. Getting revenge is not our responsibility. It's the Lord's. Our responsibility is to love our neighbor as ourself. And so when we look at this story, it's kind of hard to find great applications from it because the characters in the story are so horrible. But the story itself is about a God who you can trust is going to get the last word no matter what. So you need to just be the person he's called you to be, and that centers around people who love. Um, I think we learn for, about God that he seeks to bless us. He seeks to bless us through tough yet truthful words from a friend. In Deuteronomy, half of the people of Israel stand on Mount Gerizim, and shout blessings, and half stand on Mount Ebal, curses. Gerizim, blessings, Ebal, curses. Jotham, chapter 9, verse 7. 
Is he on the mountain of blessings or the mountain of curses? He's actually on Gerizim, the mountain of blessings. So I believe that means that what he is saying is meant to be a blessing if they would have heeded, if they would have listened. Uh, the proverb says the following, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Um, I hope you have, I hope we all have somebody in our lives who is willing to deliver that tough, truthful message that God wants to share with us. Look at the story of Abimelech and what I, what I gained from it is, is something that could be applied um, not only to this story tonight, not only to the book of Judges, but the entire Bible, uh, I guess, is the application that I'm going with tonight, is ultimately God so believes in free will moral agency that He will allow His people to completely ruin everything. God believes in giving every one of us the, the free will to make our decisions because of His love, because of His sovereignty. He, he, he gives us that gift of free will even though He knows we're going to mess it up. And that's what we see in the book of Judges time and time again. That's what we see in the book of 1 Samuel when the people wanted a king to where they could be just like everyone else. God knows this is going to be a disaster. But let them do it. That's what they want. Not that those decisions don't have consequences. Absolutely they do. Every time we choose free will that is against God's will, there are consequences. And that's what we see in the story of Abimelech. These people, they had the choice. They didn't have to let Abimelech become king. They didn't have to let Abimelech become leader. They could have said, no, we'd rather be run by the 70. But they chose to let Abimelech lead and we saw what happened. So I do see a connection between these two questions. What do we learn about God? I learned from God that he believes in free will moral agency. I believe that, that God believes in giving every one of his sons and daughters the freedom to choose. But I think ultimately what that means to me is I've got to think about the decisions I make. I've got to think about uh, the choices that I make in everyday life because God is not going to bail me out when I make a mistake. God, God is, is, the consequences are going to happen with the decisions I make. God will always take them back, take me back, forgive me of my sins as long as I have breath in my lungs, as long as I have the blood of Jesus, as long as I'm walking in the light. But ultimately, the consequences of my decisions, the consequences of my sins are going to be there. And so I've got to ask myself, what kind of decisions and choices am I making in my everyday life? In, 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 in the spiritual war that we are against the devil in my everyday life, what decisions am I making and what kind of wisdom am I displaying in those decisions? James talks about the difference in worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom in James chapter 3. I'd invite everybody to turn there. Uh, in James chapter 3, if you have a, a Bible with you tonight, turn to James chapter 3. 
We're going to read verses 13 through 16. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's what I get from the story, the account that we read in Abimelech, Judges chapter 9. I think about the choices that were made. God's going to allow us to make those choices. But if we're seeking after earthly wisdom, if we're seeking after, hey, this guy can talk really good. This guy's very persuasive. If we're looking at our lives and our decisions every day and thinking with a worldly perspective, James says that is nothing short of the same way a demon would look at it. He says it's demonic. Earthly wisdom is demonic. But heavenly wisdom, godly wisdom, is what he describes there in James chapter 3. So when I look at this this account of Abimelech, I'm I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about my choices. and I'm, I'm thinking about who's at the steering wheel ultimately is me. And if that car goes off the ditch and crashes, it's, on, it's, my, it's my fault, my fault alone. Abimelech, as we, as we wrap this up with a prayer in a moment, Abimelech is a story of failed leadership. It's a story where a man seized control out of uh, jealousy, out of pride, and, and he found three years of power. You look back at verse 22 now, Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. One last takeaway I'd like to add before we wrap up is this. Just because one finds themselves in a period of peace, just because one finds himself where everything seems to have worked out, if how I've gotten to that period of peace, how I've gotten to that, everything's working out, is outside of God's control, outside of God's will, then peace, it's not a real peace and it won't be for long. He seized control and he had control for three years, but ultimately God was still at work and God set things straight. So tonight, as we're all leaders in some ways, as we lead our families, as we lead our... In, in our influence as we lead our, our friends, our neighbors, people that sit on our pews with us. As we are leaders by the things we do and say, we always need to check ourselves. How are we doing in that realm? How, what way, are, what, what way are, in which are we leading? And is there something we can take away from Abimelech in that situation tonight? Let's close with a prayer. Dear God, thank you for being our Father, Lord. Thank you for giving us the account of Abimelech tonight. Lord, help us to look nothing like this man in any way. Help us, Lord, to live humble and gentle lives, Lord, that if we find ourselves in leadership roles, if we find ourselves with moments of influence, Lord, to keep that humble spirit and to always shine the light on you in everything we do. We thank you for being our Father and pray us your Son's name. Amen.